This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome back to the latest episode of the Money and Markets podcast. Coming up this week, we have warnings about the tax man coming for both your pension money and your children's savings, as well as some more uplifting news about UK markets. Joining me this week is Danny Hewson. Hi, Laura. Yes, I've got all the details on the FTSE 100 reaching a new record high, as well as an update on public enemy number one, the oil firms making big profits and the latest round of tech sector job layoffs. And I'll have that update on the taxman potentially coming for your pension after a new report suggested it should. And I'll be dishing all the gossip on bank chiefs being hauled in front of government ministers this week for not paying you enough interest on your savings. And on top of all that, if you need it anymore, we've also got Dan Coatsworth on the show with an interview with Round Hill music boss Josh Gruss talking all about music royalties. But let's start on that positive note with the news that the FTSE 100 index of the largest UK companies hit a new record high last week and another one this week, despite a fairly gloomy week last week for the UK economy. So, Danny, what happened? Yeah, Laura, despite another interest rate hike by the Bank of England and that really awful forecast from the IMF that we spoke about last week, the FTSE 100 smashed through its previous closing record from May 2018 on Friday night. And then this morning, it smashed another record, the intraday record that it set on Friday. Now, We have to say, of course, that this is the FTSE 100 and not the more domestically focused FTSE 250, which is up this morning, but is nowhere near the high from the end of August 2021. And that is important because London's blue chip index, of course, is home to some of the world's biggest companies. And those companies don't just make their money in the UK. They're considered well-established, well-funded and well-positioned to deal with any lingering volatility. Generally, of course, the global economy is looking brighter. And with the reopening of China, there are expected to be huge opportunities for energy companies, miners, luxury goods makers, and pretty much any company selling stuff overseas. Uh, We had, of course, New figures out from BP. I'm going to talk about those in just a moment. And we've seen energy companies, including Shell, also making big names, big gains. Um, And we also saw the likes of Reckitt Benkiser, AstraZeneca and Glencore also seeing their share price hike up. Now, some of that, I think, is down to repositioning because US investors, they're, they're sort of in that will they, won't they raise interest rates further, higher than there had been the expectation that would happen? We had some news this morning, which maybe settled some of the unanswered questions, because we've had a particularly robust jobs market in the United States, and figures on Friday sort of really sent a bucket of cold water over US markets, because in that case, Good news is seen as bad news and investors really worrying that the ongoing strength of the labour market might keep splashing fuel on the smouldering inflation pyre and lead the US Fed to keep going for longer. But we had comments from the Fed Chair Jay Powell yesterday, so 
Tuesday night UK time. And that suggested that he was pretty sanguine about the jobs market and considered that those numbers might be coloured by seasonal anomalies, something that often colours January's figures. But we still have a number of questions in the US about what happens if that jobs market doesn't sort of lose strength and what happens if that filters through to inflation. And in fact, we're due to get some new inflation numbers from the US next week. So a lot for investors to really think about. But just generally, UK equities have been oversold. They look incredibly good value still. And I was taking a look. I mean, the FTSE 100 is up almost 7% since the start of the year, which is, you know, not bad going at all. We've had a real sort of New Year's rally. And I think there's an awful lot of optimism around. But, uh, you know, it's something that for investors, after having a really terrible year last year, the fact that there is some optimism and movements in the right direction, I think, will sort of settle a lot of nerves. Now, you touched on BP there, and it depends, I guess, whether you're an investor or a bill payer as to whether you view it as a bit of positive news or not. But BP has turned in a record set of profits off the back of those rises in energy prices. Talk us through some of that. Yeah, it's fair to say that energy companies have played a big part in pushing the FTSE 100 to its new records. And of course, investors are also bill payers. But when BP earlier this week and Shell last Friday reported record-breaking profits, it didn't exactly go down well with the general public or with some politicians. Now, as you say, BP's annual profits doubled to $28 billion. Shell made the biggest profit in its 115-year history. History, double last year to 40 billion. Both have made investors very happy with billions of dollars of share buybacks, stonking dividends, and soaring share prices. But the public, not so much. Despite the implementation of windfall taxes in Europe and the UK, and both playing globally billions of dollars in tax, there has been an awful lot of commentary about these kind of profits being, and here are a couple of words that I picked up from UK newspapers over the last couple of days, sickening was one, disgusting was another, Um, because the businesses themselves are profiting from high energy prices. It's not something that they've done differently, and those high energy prices are making people's lives miserable. Now, both companies, they've got three things to do. They've got to look after their investors, pay taxes, and make sure that we have all the energy we need. And as sort of an addendum to that, also to sort of assist in the transitioning to cleaner, greener energy. But they have a big PR problem and a big dilemma because that transition that I was just talking about, it's clear there's still a huge amount of money to be made in fossil fuels. And both in the last couple of days have announced that they're putting the brakes on that shift a little bit, investing more money in new oil and gas projects. Now, two reasons, of course, because that is where the money is, but also because the world still needs oil and gas and will need it for the foreseeable future. So it's a political issue. It's an ideological issue rather than a business one, because The business case at the moment is clear and there are plenty of other global energy companies on the field. Dan spoke about Exxon last week and the rebuke from the White House. 
Today, Total Energy has also announced that its profits have doubled to $36 billion. And also, you've got to remember, a lot of people's pensions are invested in these great big energy giants. But it is uncomfortable and it's a situation that is going to persist for a while, even if oil and gas prices are coming down. And then elsewhere in markets, we've talked before about some of those big job cuts in the tech sector, and we've got the latest announcement of some more this week, haven't we? Yeah, Dell, the um, latest company to announce big job cuts, and it it's a long list, Laura. I mean, there's hardly any big tech player that's not on the list at the moment. I think Apple is the sort of standout, but that's because it didn't hire in the same way that other companies hired post-pandemic. It was sort of steady away, whereas the likes of um, Dell, the likes of certainly um, Meta, because uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was saying he apologised for, for effectively getting it wrong, for bringing on too many people and not expecting that there was going to be a post-pandemic shift. Now, it's been interesting to watch what's gone on with Dell, because while the other tech companies, when they announced these cuts, what you saw was shares go up, but Dell announced the cuts at the same time as some pretty dismal earnings and sales in laptops and desktops it announced had fallen by almost 40% in the last quarter as, of course, a lot of people had spent their money during the pandemic in order to get them kitted out for home working and they brought forward spend and just don't need to do it anymore. There's a huge amount of debt that these companies have. They've also got to you know, invest in the next lot of technology. A lot of talk at the moment about AI, Microsoft uh, with chat GPT. So there are big shifts going on at the moment. And of course, that requires to make sure that these companies have their costs really set, really tight in order for investors to, to feel comfortable. Um, just another tech company to uh, mention, Tesla's shares were up at uh, the start of the week after the news came that Elon Musk had been cleared for wrongdoing. Um, it's all related to a tweet in which he said that he'd funding secured to take Tesla back into private ownership. Um, the post was from August 2018 and shareholders argued that he'd misled them and because of the fact that that buyout never happened, they uh, they lost billions of dollars. Um, now, through the trial, Mr. Musk argued that he thought that he did have a verbal commitment from Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund for the deal. Um, shareholders argued that funding secured needed more than a verbal agreement, but the court didn't agree. So um, it, it could have been an incredibly costly tweet. As it was, uh, Elon Musk still had to pay $20 million to the SEC in order to uh, settle a case with them. Um, but uh, obviously, this has been good news for Tesla investors who were really concerned about what was going to happen, maybe because uh, you know Elon Musk has certainly had his uh, focus rather split, um, not just dealing with this, but also, of course, dealing with Twitter. And then were there any other notable updates for markets this week? Anything else we need to know about? 
I think it's worth mentioning um, we had an update from uh, UK house builder Barrett's. Um, there's some good news mixed in with the bad, saying that they had improved reservation levels, but you know clearly uh, UK house building in for a bit of a rocky road, and uh, it has announced a decision to cut the dividend, which suggests that it really is reacting to new realities. Um, just today, we've had news from Uber Technologies, uh, strongest quarter ever for Uber, says the boss, chief executive, Dara Karashawi. And uh, he said that the company was now focused on achieving profitability. Now, you know, effectively what's happened, um, that we've all gone back to a lot of our old habits. So he's seen, you know, that the sort of rides to the airport, traveling to the office and that kind of thing really help um, the company in terms of its uh, revenue um, beat Wall Street estimates and uh, a huge increase, 49% increase from the prior year. Uh, and just one more that's worth uh, mentioning is Foxcore. They've also announced additional share buybacks of $3 billion today, despite the fact that uh, a lot of broadcasters have really seen um, issues with their ad revenues. Fox actually announced that uh, ad revenues were up by 4%, which is no mean feat at all. Um, that primarily is down to the World Cup in Qatar and strong NFL results at Fox Sports. Now, Laura, big oil companies aren't the only public enemies at the moment. Banks have been accused of boosting profits by not hiking savings rate and brought in front of the government this week to answer some tough questions. Yeah, they were. The heads of Lloyd's, Barclays, HSBC and NatWest were hauled in front of the Treasury Select Committee this week just to ask why they hadn't raised savings interest rates by more because at the same time they have significantly hiked mortgage rates. This is obviously with the backdrop of the Bank of England raising interest rates, but also that kind of market spiral we saw after the ill-fated mini-budget last year. Um, Money Facts data shows that the average high street bank um, with an easy access savings account is still paying interest of less than 1% a year. So you can see how some of those really big high street names, which is what the government was speaking to this week, have really dragged their feet on raising savings rates. What we have seen is this kind of war, interest rate war in the savings market. But a lot of that is led by challenger banks, startup banks, and those much smaller ones that don't have the name recognition of these big high street banks. Um, in turn, the bank bosses said that savers don't actually want higher interest rates on their savings accounts, which I thought was a, a bold claim to make. And I will let the public be the judge of whether they want that or not. Um, instead, what they said was they... The, they thought their customers wanted more regular savings accounts with higher interest. So they said that the nation had kind of fallen out of love with saving. Um, lots of people didn't have the ability to save. And what people wanted was an extra incentive to start saving and a prompt to start saving more, which is why they felt their customers were better served by having regular saver accounts that offer high interest rates. And that is certainly the case at the moment. I mean, First Direct is paying 7% interest on a regular saver account. You can put in £300 a month. That's the maximum. You can put in less than that. Um, but these accounts are only really good for new money that you're saving because that 7% that you get over a year, it's usually fixed for a year, 
um, you only get it the full 7% on that first month's payment that you put in. So in this example, that £300 a month that you put in in the first month, you're getting 7% on that money. But for subsequent payments, you're only getting that rate for 11 months of the year, 10 months of the year. And then in your final monthly payment, you're only getting that rate for one month before that rate expires after a year. So I crunched some numbers. And if you took that first direct account, you saved the maximum £300 a month, then across the year, you would get £136.50 interest in a year. But on the total sum that you've saved, that works out about 3.8% interest on the total sum. So not that headline 7% that, that we're talking about. And I think that's the real flaw with those regular savers that these banks say they want. It's great for people that want that incentive to put away an extra bit of money. But if you've already got existing savings sitting there that you're sitting on, they're not a great option for that. But of course, banks respond to different forces, partly the base rate rising, but also competitors. Um, They're also quite um, cautious at the moment. If we look at the economic backdrop, a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, the chance of you know the UK now being in a recession, more people losing jobs, banks are quite keen to shore up their books in anticipation of the fact that both businesses and individuals may well default on loans or on mortgages if the economic backdrop gets a bit hairy and people start losing their jobs more. So their kind of margin and the profit that they make between what they lend money out at um, and what they pay on their savings rates is how they kind of boost their profits and how they shore that up. But it's just another, I think, big reminder that savers need to vote with their feet and move their accounts. These high street banks can afford to not pay high rates on their savings because lots of people are happy to just sit there and leave their money in accounts earning very little. Now, previously, when it was a difference between earning 0% and maybe half a percent, you could see how that probably wasn't enough to motivate some people to move. Now we're talking a really big difference here in terms of the top easy access savings account you can get or fixed rate accounts. It's actually definitely worth people moving their money. But those saving rates also have a little sting in the tail for some savers, Laura, because the tax man might come calling. Yeah, exactly. And I think one particular area, I mean, we've talked before about the the personal savings allowance, which is um, the amount that you can earn through interest on your savings before you get taxed on that money. Uh, For basic rate taxpayers, you can earn £1,000 a year um, in savings interest before you're taxed on it. For higher rate earners, you get a £500 a year limit and additional rate taxpayers um, get no limit. So we've talked before about how this kind of spike in savings rates means that lots of people who don't have their money in ISA accounts could well be facing tax on their savings potentially for the first time. There's also a little known tax rule that lots of parents won't be aware of that means that they can end up being taxed on the interest that their children's savings earn. So if you save money for your child, once they earn interest above £100 a year, it actually counts as your income, as the parent's income, and that goes towards your personal savings allowance and then will be taxed as such. So that could tip you over your personal savings allowance or if you're already over it with your own savings interest, you'll then be taxed on that money at your marginal income tax rate. Um, So if we think about 
previously that wouldn't have been so much of an issue you would have had to have had a lot of money in your child's savings accounts to have hit that 100 pound limit but now if we look the top easy access children's account from hsbc is 3.75 percent so once you have a bit more than 2600 pounds in there you'll hit that 100 pound limit um and that limit is obviously lower if you're in a fixed um rate account which pays a higher interest. So the top two year fix at the moment for children is four and a half percent. That means if you had £2,200 in there, you're going to you're going to hit that limit. So it's more just one where you should go back, check how much money you have in your child's account, um, the interest that it's earning and see if you're likely to be hit by this. Interestingly, the £100 limit doesn't apply to money that's been given by grandparents, relatives or friends to your children. Um, It also doesn't apply to any money in a junior ISA. So it's really a way of the government trying to avoid parents just funneling money into their children's savings accounts and avoiding paying that tax on their interest that they would do if the money was sitting in an account in their own name. So it's a good reminder to go back and check and check you won't be hit by that tax. But also while you're there, make sure that any old savings accounts you've got from your children are earning the most that they could because rates in that market have also risen significantly. And if money's been sitting there for a couple of years, it's likely that the rate will have dropped during that time and you won't be getting the most that you could. So much to think about. I I had no idea, but then uh, my kids... Uh, spend any money that they have in their accounts. So <laughs> that is one to way to get around paying tax. <laughs> <laughs> Another area where the tax man could profit is from pensions. So we had a report out this week that laid out some potential reforms to the pension system, which included the pretty radical suggestion of cutting the tax-free lump sum that you can take from your pension. Now, that would not be popular What is the background to the report? Yeah, so Danny, this was a report from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, a think tank. The report was called A Blueprint for Better Tax Treatment of Pensions. Now, obviously, this is like catnip to Tom Selby, our pensions reporter. But sadly, he is feeling under the weather today. So I'm stepping into the pensions remit. Um, Essentially, what the report did was it's, it's recognizing the fact that Pensions now have shifted away from those generous defined benefit schemes that we saw of the past. Auto enrolment has been a success in bringing people into pensions and meaning that more people have pensions. But what the report was aiming to do is make the system simpler for all, but also even out the tax support that's there. And so try and reduce subsidies that maybe are only used by much wealthier people or where the the think tank deemed they were overly generous and then also increase some of the subsidies where they think it might encourage more people to save into their pension so that's kind of the backdrop to it see i cannot believe that tom hasn't pulled himself off his sick bed to talk about this because you're absolutely right i can just see him rubbing his hands together with glee or getting incredibly cross so let's talk about this tax-free cash Yes. So at the moment, you can take um, 25% of your pension as tax-free cash. And one of the things that the report suggested is that actually this could be scrapped or limited. So it said that essentially this provides a big tax subsidy to those who are on high incomes or who have big pensions. But actually, if in retirement you are not a taxpayer, you don't earn enough to pay tax, it's a 
little or no help to you. Um, so in order to even the playing field, the report suggested that at a minimum, it should be capped so that it only applies to 25% of your pension up to an amount. Um, one of the suggestions was £400,000, for example, and then above that, you don't get um, that benefit. It's a tricky one, though, because, I mean, there's so many practical implication issues of this. So how do you implement that new system if you brought it in with people that are saving at the moment under the belief that they're going to get that tax-free lump sum. It's one of the parts of the pension system and, and the retirement system that's actually very well understood and people really value the ability to do that. So kind of removing it or limiting it or capping it in any way um, risks kind of undermining the trust that people have in the pension system. Um, and it's also going to be very unpopular. So it's probably worth pointing out that this is a report with, from a think tank that's aiming to kind of spark ideas, provide suggestions of what could happen. It's not things that are going to be implemented by the government. It's more kind of food for thought for the government. And I think this one, I mean, a government trying to win a general election anytime soon, probably not going to tinker with this one. <laughs> and another idea from the IFS um, that would please the taxman was changing how people are taxed on death. Yeah, exactly. So the one of the suggestions was the potential for pensions to be included in inheritance tax, so counted as part of your estate for IHT purposes. Um, now, obviously, the tax treatment of pensions on death is pretty generous. Um, and so this is something that potentially the government could look at. Um, so former Chancellor George Osborne scrapped. There was a controversial 55% death tax on pensions um, that was scrapped. Um, and these new suggestions aren't, aren't quite, don't go quite that far, but they do also come quite close to introducing a kind of penalty on death. Um, it's something that could raise money for the Treasury, so that might pique their interest. Um, and the argument is that for those people that have significant wealth left in their pension pots at death, the majority of those would be kind of wealthy individuals. So it's another area where the IFS sees that kind of a smaller number of wealthier individuals are benefiting rather than it being a big appeal to the masses. I think you have doubled for Tom brilliantly. Um, and before we let you get back to your normal job, uh, were there any other notable suggestions? So I think one of the other ones was where the pensioners should pay national insurance. This was something um, that kind of reared its head previously under one of the many iterations of government that we've had in recent years, um, where working pensioners should pay national insurance. Um, this report kind of revisits that and looks at whether pensioners should pay it anyway, whether, regardless of whether they're working or not. Um, I think another one that we can probably shelve in the unlikely to happen just because we do have an election around the corner and alienating those kind of the big swathe of pensioner communities is probably not something that either Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer have on their to-do list. So you're right. I mean, politics are play a massive part in things like this. And we've got a huge fiscal event just around the corner. Exactly. So we've got a budget next month. I mean, it's obviously unlikely that the these suggestions now are going to be implemented in time for the budget. But wilder things have happened with budgets in recent years. So I wouldn't put it completely off the cards. Um, 
It's basically, we'll wait and see, but obviously we're bringing you all of the pre-budget and budget post-budget coverage as and when that happens. I'm going to get my snacks ready already. I'm always very impressed with the tweets that go out from business journalists on the day of the budget where they've got their snacks lined up. Um, Monster Munch, pickled onion flavour, definitely my snack of choice. How about you? That is a great choice. I basically just go for anything with sugar in it so that my eyelids feel slightly like they're sweating by the end of the day because I've just survived on sugar. (laughs) It's a great time. Good choice. Um, And finally today, obtaining the rights to popular songs has been a hot area of the investment world over the past few years. The rights holder receives a royalty payment each time that the song is played in an advert on on TV, which sounds like easy money to me, but I suspect there's a bit more to it than that. So Dan Coatesworth met up with Josh Gruss from Roundhill Music to learn how his investment company has secured the rights to songs such as Total Eclipse of the Heart and All By Myself. Some great bangers there. Let's hear what they had to say. So, Josh, why are so many famous musicians selling the rights to their music? Because I got the impression that if they're if they're famous enough, they're already rich in the first place. They don't need more money. Yeah, that's a good question. So it's it's important to take a step back and recognize that we're talking about musicians, you're talking about uh, songwriters and artists, right? And they might not be the same thing. So when we're acquiring rights, we're, we're acquiring the rights to the publishing, which is the rights to the composition, the songwriting. And um, and that's, you know, 70% of what we buy. Um, a lot of artists don't write their own songs. A lot of artists would like to create the illusion that they did write their own song. Um, but it's a lot of, in a lot of the cases, um, famous artists aren't writing their own songs. So whether it's simply the best by Tina Turner that was written by a woman named Holly Knight, or if you think about all the, the big pop songs by Britney Spears, et cetera, those are, um, Max Martin songs, so on and so forth. So a lot of the times these really big songs aren't written by the famous person you see on TV getting into their um, Rolls Royce uh, at the hotel right before their concert. Um, So, you know, these songwriters um, make their money just from their copyrights. Not, they don't make um, tens of millions of dollars when they go play a concert. Actually they have, they really have no audience for a concert. So they don't really have that outlet. A lot of artists do write their own songs, of course. So a good example would be like Fleetwood Mac. And uh, they sold their their rights recently. Um, and I think, you know, there are probably very well off already. But in the case of uh, Lindsey Buckingham, I think he sold because he was just about to be fired from the band. And so therefore didn't have the access to, to touring from that point on. Or, um, or Christina McVie, she sold perhaps knowing that she had bad health and um, she wanted to settle her estate before she died, um, so on and so forth. So there are always these kind of hidden reasons. And, you know, touring is the way that most artists make the bulk of their money. um, And that's how they get really rich. But there comes a point in in life when they're too old to really um, count on that forever. And you can't really sell your touring business. You can't be Stevie Nicks and um, 
sell the future of your touring if you're if you're not going to be alive unless you're the guys in ABBA who uh, figured out how to do something nifty with holograms. But um, but you know the one thing that you do have that's sellable um, are your copyrights. So um, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. What? Well, so obviously you, you you know as a, an investor in music royalties. Um, you want to own you know some or all the rights to a song and then you you try and place those bits of music into a, an advert or, or um, a TV series for example but h- how do you go about getting a song picked to appear on something that might appear on on your your screen at home yeah there there's there's several ways that that happens um but probably the most uh, usual way would be just by owning a very famous song since one way or another. So at Roundhill, we we own um, What a Wonderful World, originally recorded by Louis Armstrong. Um, now that song gets licensed into so many different commercials and um, or you guys call them adverts. Um, and uh, and movies and everything, whether we proactively pitch that song or not, we, you know, we would definitely get many many inbound calls to license that song each year, just because it's a very um, it's a song that that really works well for branding and and sort of has a very universal message. So um, I'd say eight out of ten times with these songs you see on TV the producer of the the movie or the the commercial they sort of already know what song they want to use and it's a matter of them finding out who owns it and calling them up and um and negotiating a license for it i'd say the other 20 percent of the time it's uh proactively licensed meaning a group like round hill will take a song and, and go out and say hey listen to this song it'd be perfect for your commercial it'd be perfect for your new television series what have you and that's when sort you know a little you know more undiscovered songs get um get a shot at um getting synchronized that way i mean what what's the sort of the biggest income for you is it is it getting a a song placed on a commercial or a film or is it actually sort of streaming or having the song played live in general, about 50% of what we earn comes from streaming. Another 25% comes from what we call performance royalties, which are royalties that come from radio broadcasts, television broadcasts, um, when music's played at bars or restaurants or sports events, um, basically whenever you hear music in public. Um, that's about 25%. And the rest would be um, synchronization, which is when we get paid for songs up front um, to be able to be licensed into film and TV and, and things like that. Okay. One of the so biggest... there, there, are two, there are two royalties. With, with a movie or TV show, you get paid for them to initially synchronize the music to the film or the, the visual media. And then you know, if a song is in Forrest Gump or something, every every time Forrest Gump is broadcast anywhere in the world, the music underlying the film 
um, pays out a royalty. So it, it there's an upfront fee called synchronization and a back end fee called performance. I think one of the biggest criticisms of music royalty vehicles is that we really get to know the cost of buying a royalty and how long it takes to get a return on investment. So why isn't there more transparency from investment vehicles like yours? Well, our whole goal is to show as much transparency as possible. So we do have on our public website in in England, um, we have a section that shows for each catalog that we buy, how much it's earned from day one um, every year. Um, so that allows you to see, you know, how it's performing, whether it's um, growing, whether it's not growing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I guess the other variable to understanding its performance is how much did you pay for that asset in the first place? And for that, it's a little bit more difficult for us to do, primarily because when we do these deals with songwriters and artists, we sign an NDA. And one of the things that a seller doesn't really want floating around um, for a lot of different reasons is is how much they sold their catalog for. So um, it might, you know, you can understand that, like people don't want, you know, the government or, um, you know, some cases like uh, bands worry that their audience will think of them differently if, um, you know, if this pop punk band who has a very sort of, uh, you know, low key kind of feel to their band that they're, that they just earned a hundred million dollars. They, 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 they think that they're, um, it's not really linked to their brand it doesn't do well for their brand if, if people know that kind of information. So most of the times it's the sellers that's prohibiting us that are pro- prohibiting us from, uh, from disclosing the price. And, um, and so that there's not much we can do about that part of it. Okay. Well, your, your portfolio has quite a big weighting to rock music. Do you think, these types of songs have perhaps got more longevity than something like pop music, which might be hit one day, but you know, people forget about it a few years later. The first piece of criteria that we think about when looking at acquisition is, will this music stand the test of time? Will this music continue to be consumed, listened to um, 20, 30 40 years from now, um, that's a real important piece of the equation because if you buy something that's been hot for the last one to five years, um, but it falls off a cliff, you know, five or 10 years from now, that's ultimately going to be a bad investment because the way that you underwrite these catalogs takes into account that um, the earnings will last in perpetuity um and so if the reality of that is perpetuity becomes it you know it only lasts five years that's that's gonna make for a bad investment so we've found that rock music really seems to to, to stand the test of time better than other genres that's probably because um 
well, the music's rock music is appreciated around the world. If you go to Latin America, you know, and Metallica comes into town, there'll be, you know, half a million people will show up and there'll be riots and, you know, well, there aren't too many uh, bands that can show up pretty much anywhere in the world and, and draw stadium stadium full um, full of crowd like like Metallica. Um, so so rock fans um, are very loyal. The, the music is very consistent. And um, you know, think of a song like Bohemian Rhapsody. That song is now, gosh, forty five years old. Um, but uh, Queen, you know, is one of the top 30 streamed artists on Spotify still. Uh, and, and so it, there's a there's a longevity to the music that we that we really understand and, and appreciate. Well, Josh Gross from Round Hill Music, thank you yeah. ever so much for your time. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Daniel. Josh Gruss from Round Hill Music talking to Dan Coatesworth. And that is everything for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like the podcast, hit the subscribe button so that you never miss an episode and leave a review wherever you listen to us. See you next time. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.